Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso. He's Alex Dykes. Alex, you just returned from Detroit. First, let me know, is the Detroit show back? Because I think we have guessed that these trade shows were going to be an article. Mm, yeah. Uh, I should probably say that I'm not the biggest fan of auto shows. I used to love going to them as a consumer. I went to everyone I could get my hands on all the time. I would go every day if I could have. Um, but as a member of the automotive media, I hate them with an absolute passion um, because they're just they're just crazy. There's so much to do, so little time, and you're just it's an anthill inside there. So it's hard to get content done. But that said, um, not a lot going on in Detroit. It was probably the easiest auto show I've been to in a while because so many car companies just didn't show up. Um, from a consumer perspective, so the folks that are listening to this, it's probably unimportant. It's the auto show that you guys remember, uh, same format as before. Everybody's going to be there for the consumer side. All the Japanese car companies, all the European car companies, etc. And that's sort of the weird twist with auto shows from my perspective in the media industry is that when consumers go to the auto show, most of those cars are actually provided by the local dealers. And a lot of the staff is funded by local dealerships, dealership groups, and some regional media things, et cetera. Uh, but when we're talking about New York, Chicago, Detroit, and Los Angeles, the two biggies being Los Angeles and New York, uh, those shows are generally staffed by car companies. And that's where you're going to find the new products, the things that are behind ropes, the concept cars, things like that. That's where they're going to happen. Those are probably the coolest shows to go to if you're looking for a cool auto show. But on the media side, not a lot happens anymore at the auto show. Like the the Mustang reveal, even the reveal didn't even happen at the show. I, I saw the car the day before the show. And then after the show was done for the media, they showed all the rest of the media that was not invited to the preview event. Um, the Chrysler, et cetera, all that sort of stuff happened outside the show as well. So not a lot of news really happening at car shows these days. Yeah, it's kind of a year-round release schedule. And for a lot of brands, it's more practical to release these things online and just try to open sales as early as possible. Mm -hmm. Like we just saw the send-off Chrysler 300C, and they had 2,000 of them available. And they announced it online. They sold it online. They sold out in 12 hours online. And yep. while that's a niche product, we're not far removed from how cars are going to be offered in the future. Ford is now limiting how dealers can actually offer its EVs. It's taking a more centralized control of the process. Who needs auto shows or dealers at this point? It still does help with customers. Uh, auto shows are, are certainly here to stay for customers. And this is yeah. kind of that split that we need to be sure of. If you're looking to buy a new car and you don't know what you want, auto shows are a great place to go. Go to your local auto show, sit in everything. You can crawl all over them. You can sit in the back seat as long as you want. You can poke under the hood. You can walk from one car to the other to the other without sales pressure because nobody there is trying to sell you a car, thank God. And that is the perfect place to do that kind of comparison shopping. If you're going to do that and it's going to be a comparison shopping, take the whole family, make a day of it because you want to make sure that all of your kids fit well in there. You want to make sure that whoever is going to be driving the vehicle with you, your partner, your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, 
that they are okay with the vehicle as well. And that's the easiest, lowest pressure way to do that. And you can have a hot dog at the stand while you're doing it. Now on the automotive press side, bonkers, bonkers, because the way this all sorts out is that all of the high level A-list press, which I'm not of, mind you, <laughs> uh, yeah. depend, depends on the list. Sometimes I'm like an A minus, but at any rate, so, you know, the, the buff books, the teams of 20, 30 people from, from, you know, Motor Trend are there. Um, the automotive YouTube outlets uh, like us, like TFL, like Redline, et cetera, where we have a team of usually two to three that go, we're all there. And then somehow every art student known to man comes out Lots of manufacturer PR people and manufacturer engineers, and this is the weird one, especially in the New York and LA Auto Show, come out. So Toyota rolls out a brand new car. You would assume this would be the moment for the mainline media to then go up and have times to film the car, have a video for our, our viewers, you know, take some photos for Motor Trend for whoever, right? That is not how that goes down. The moment the spotlight's off, the engineers from, from Great Wall, from Geely, from who knows who, come up and they start measuring the car on the stage <laughs> while we're all trying to also film the car. And then there's this horde of, of art students and relative friends and family. I'm not sure why they're on a media day too. And they're all swarming on the car too while we're all trying to work. So it's very frustrating from a media perspective. Well, from a consumer perspective, I want to remind folks that before you make a day of it and head out to the auto show, if you're doing this for consumer reasons, make sure the car and the brand you want to see will be at the show. Because in New York, for a long time, the big German automakers would exhibit. Now they don't. And it is a huge That's gap true. in the New York auto show um, array of available vehicles considering the northeast is one of the biggest national markets for those cars there's some talk that maybe the regional dealers will put something together just so they can have a presence but if you weren't expecting to see audi mercedes-benz or bmw you would be very disappointed so yes check that's those. true yeah and same thing goes for the chicago show or sorry the detroit show i keep for some reason it's all midwest in my head and i know that's not how it is but somehow they they go together uh, but the detroit show uh, Volvo and Polestar, for instance, had no media presence, but they did have cars there. So on the public days, it's going to they'll be there in a very reduced capacity versus what you would see, say, in Los Angeles at the LA Auto Show, yes. uh, where all the brands will be there. And that is probably what we're going to see going forward. In years past, for instance, uh, the booth size generally correlated to brand size in America. You know, the Chevy booth, the Ford booth, the Toyota booth, they were absolutely ginormous. Now that is not necessarily the case. It sort of depends on what the manufacturer might have that's new to bring to the media versus what they want to show to consumers. So at the Detroit show, Toyota didn't have anything new to show because they'd already shown it. And uh, so they had a, a much smaller booth. They have everything there, but in a much smaller, more compressed format. And I can't blame Toyota really because it's it's marketing for them because they're the, the consumers show up that day. And for the media, they've already invited who they wanted to see their product before. And that allows them to not have art students crawling all over them and the other car manufacturers standing out there with tape measures, measuring their headlights for some reason. That's funny because when you go to the auto show in New York, 
they still have presenters on the stages during the consumer days and you talk to them and you ask them they say oh yeah i'm a theater major at fordham and you know i'm <laughs> going to be auditioning for off broadway next month but you know this is my gig in the meantime and when all these theater majors who are getting their big break with hyundai and kia and ford who knew yep yep all right they got to staff the booth So jumping into some new launches, I think everyone's probably still buzzing about the Mustang. Seventh generation, American classic, uh, somewhat more attainable than a Corvette, and also very finely refined rather than revolutionarily redesigned. What was the feel of the new car? Big change or incremental? I have to say I really liked it. I have not been an overly... um overly enthused person with the Mustang in the past. I am considering getting a Mustang as a long-term test vehicle. I'm not clear if the audience is interested. We need to run some polling data on that with our audience, I think, and find out if they really want us to try it. But this is the first Mustang in a while that I like the look of. And I have talked to so many Mustang fans that are so offended by that statement because they think this looks hideous. They think it looks too much like a Camaro. They think it looks too much like a Ford Mustang Mach-E on the inside, etc. I think that both of those directions were just fine. Um, it looks angry up front. It looks kind of like a Hyundai in the back with the the, the big line between the the Chevron-style tail lamps module, that, that really cut-in line there. Yeah. Um, and I like the interior. I like the loss of the double binnacle. I think that double binnacle thing just way outlived its styling necessity. Uh, so now the, the two screen setup looks way more modern, way crisper, et cetera. But you're right. It is a true refresh, a heavy refresh rather than a redesign. Yeah, I think the, the greatest single change in the Mustang in my lifetime was the changeover from the Fox body in 2005. And I think it was like S197, I think they call that. Mm -hmm. That was a huge change considering the Fox body had been used since, well, the, yeah. the early 1980s, <laughs> since we were rolling in our 5.0. I actually like the incremental change here because I didn't mm -hmm. think there was anything fundamentally wrong with the proportions of the S550. I do think there's going to be some controversy about whether the changes look more like aftermarket mods to an mm. S550. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I am okay with, with the redes the refresh, uh, the refreshy design, whatever we want to call this, this weird Neverland, uh, because obviously creating a body that is this unique, a platform that is this unique on a low volume product. Remember the, the Mustang only sells about 70,000 units a year on a good year, and that's convertible and coupe combined. And those are two quite different structures, really. You can't just whack the top off of something and call it a convertible. I mean, you could, but then you'd have a Chrysler Sebring, and that would be Ooh. bad. Um, so, sure. you know, it's very expensive to do these this this kind of, of vehicle. And when you think of it that way, the Mustang is significantly lower volume than a Challenger, for instance, because Challenger is all coupe. And Mustang, it's, it's, it's probably around 30% convertible, seems to be a lot of estimates around there. Ford won't say for sure, but it's pretty high on the convertible uh, market share, which means the actual coupe volume is quite low. Uh, and having a new independent rear suspension platform was wicked expensive for Ford, so it's logical that they need to make this work. And there was nothing wrong with the, the chassis on the old one, so I'm fine with that too. I think that my biggest problem was the interior. 
I liked the exterior. I did not like the interior at all. So they changed the exterior a little bit and they, they completely redesigned the interior. And I think that's pretty much what they needed because you're Ford and you're looking across town at Dodge and you're like, God damn, that Challenger has been on the market since 2008. And mm -hmm. one major change was the 2014 redesign when it got an interior that was no longer dollar store cheap. And it's basically been riding that interior and a succession of ever crazier engines until the present day. So I'm okay with Ford investing enough to improve the platform, improve the feel, the look, uh, the function of the interior, and then give us some performance enhancements on the side. But refinement is fine as long as we keep getting the car. We're going to get yeah. one more generation of a gas-powered engine and one more generation of a manual transmission. That's never a given. I'd have to say I'm happy on the whole. I do sort of regret that you can no longer get an enthusiast package with a manual transmission on the base engine. Uh, yeah. Now it's going to be four-cylinder automatic or you step up to a V8 if you want a manual. There's really nothing in between anymore. I would not be surprised if it came back at some future date as a special edition, it's possible. And I say that because nothing substantive changed. It's the same uh, same mounting points for the transmission, et cetera, are there. So there's no particular reason they couldn't. It sim simply seems to be demand. Uh, manual transmission sales have been falling on the Mustang still. So we should be thankful that anything exists. But if there was some sort of runaway success on, on GT manual, they could consider bringing something back for, uh, for the 2.3 liter um, it would have to be, of course, emissions tested separately, which is quite yes. expensive. And that's the big problem there. Uh, we don't know power details yet. I was hoping that we would hear something. Uh, they said that both will be more powerful than before. And the GT will be the most powerful GT ever. So big asterisk there. They're not saying most powerful Mustang, most powerful Mustang GT. So probably 475, 480 horsepower, somewhere around there. There's the rumor that the Dark Horse will be well over 500 horsepower, but how well over, we don't know. And uh, the 2.3 liter turbo should probably be maybe 320, 330 horsepower, something like that. So very powerful. And by, uh, by the other uh, interesting twist here is that because this is not a complete refresh, a redesign rather, it's more of a refresh, I think that they should be able to keep pricing pretty close to the outgoing model. And if that's the case, it's going to be basically starting where a GR86 and BRZ start. Also important, if you're listening to this out in internet land, uh, the dark horse we're talking about effectively slots between where the Mach 1 and the Shelby mm -hmm. GT350 used to be. So this is going to be a more aggressive, performance-oriented vehicle. Obviously, it's it's got the Coyote engine. It has all of the hardware that you would get if you got a GT with the performance package. And then it has more on top of that, including more power, uh, more auxiliary coolers, exclusive bodywork, paint and interior options. And uh, you will be able to get the carbon revolution wheels which suggests to me that this might be a more committed car a uh, performance wise than we're guessing i think we're guessing somewhere between 500 and 520 horsepower mm -hmm. but those wheels each if you need to replace them as service units cost about seven thousand dollars they'll be big yeah i'm hoping this will be closer to a shelby than a mach 1 but stay tuned on that front do we have any kind of pricing for these no pricing for that. Don't expect the base model and the GT to stretch too far beyond where we see now. So most likely the base version is going to be well under $30,000. Uh, 
it's likely going to be somewhere between twenty-eight dollars and $29,000 is my guess there. So again, very direct competitor, interestingly, to something like a an end product from Hyundai, which would be front-wheel drive, or a GR86, which is going to be rear-wheel drive from Toyota and the, and the Subaru uh, envelope. But you're going to get a bigger, much more comfortable, more practical vehicle with a whole lot more power. And that's probably the biggest thing versus the Subaru and the Toyota is you know, you'll get 100 more horsepower basically out of the Ford, a slightly more usable backseat, and a whole ton more gears on the transmission. I would get the Ford over the GR86 probably even before the the redesign, and I would absolutely buy it now over the redesign. The interior is also light years ahead of the GR86 and BRZ. Thankfully, that puts it a light year ahead of the old model. Uh, they redid all the textures on the inside, so it no longer has the Naga Heidi fake cow thing going on as far as the textures go. I met some people that disliked that, but I think that was the right direction for them to go in. Uh, this is also the same thing that we see in like the uh, the Maverick. So some of the textures on the dashboard are similar. I think that it 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 helps put it in a more modern theme category than the previous generation Mustang. The previous Mustang looked very 1980s in some ways. Some some areas of the dash with those fake fake cow textures. This is a lot better. Also, some more premium materials, some more stitched and soft touch components on the dashboard really help things out. And if you get the premium trim option on the base engine and the GT, then the center console becomes a soft touch stitched wrapped uh, piece, which is definitely much nicer feeling. And they mentioned that they found millennials in particular preferred to have a all digital non-analog instrumentation. That sounds like a way of covering for cost cutting, but did you get to try any of these telematics firsthand engage the responsiveness, ease of navigation yeah, I did. And I was actually impressed uh, oddly with it. I was really worried because when they initially brought us into the room, and this is the Ford does things a little weirdly. So if you guys haven't checked out the video, you can check out the launch video on the Alex Nottos channel. Uh, rather weirdly, the day prior to that, they corralled us all and ran us through the presentation studio on the Mustang. And it was in better lighting with better colored vehicles. And we got to sit in the convertible and all that. And then we couldn't film any of that. God knows why. At any rate, the convertible looks really good. Um, and the interior is much more premium. But they also had display units of the infotainment system that we could, you know, interact with. And they kept calling it Sync 4, which had me concerned. Because Sync 4 is kind of sluggish in the Lightning and in the Mach-E. And supposedly with this, it's very similar hardware. They wouldn't say for sure if it was the same. Similar hardware with a complete UI makeover. So they had involved, I can't remember what the name of the gaming company was. Maybe you might remember. But they involved a gaming company with the redesign of the software and the UI and uh, and completely redid it. And it looks way better. Is, is this the Unreal Engine? Is this yes, one of the yes, yes. Okay, so, um, so first person shooters and also cars and coffee catastrophe. Yeah, interesting. And so they uh, they they completely redid the UI. They added a ton more sport gauges, Mustang specific gauges. I really like the digital instrument cluster. I I'm a big fan of of LCDs, mind you. So that's just me. But you can get a Fox body look if you want that yes. to your to your instrument cluster. So I thought that was the funniest part of it. But they have uh, they've really expanded the number of displays and options and things you can get in there, which they'd already did a good job of in the last Mustang GT. They took that to the next level with this one. And even though the screen size changes, most of the functionality is still going to be there in the base model. And so that's what you're going to get across the board. You're going to get better telematics. 
base model is still going to get the same flat bottom steering wheel, going to get a lot of the same mm -hmm. functionality in terms of the interface. If you do go with performance, let's, let's just focus what you get on a GT. So the GT gets you the likely 480 horsepower Coyote V8. That's going to be mm -hmm. basic before you go dark horse. The fourth, fourth generation Coyote V8 That's with right. dual throttle bodies. Which is actually kind of cool because old school hot rodding tricks like that, you don't see them too often in the mm -hmm. direct injected and computer. Oh, it's totally cool. Yeah. Oh, I, totally I had I had a car with dual throttle bodies once. Do you want to guess what it was? You had a car and this was stock. Stock, mm. stock dual throttle bodies in the 90s. Well, let's see. If it was some sort of BMW M car, it would have had one throttle body per cylinder. So it's not one of those. Was was it was it some other muscle car? Or was it was it a Toyota that I'm not expecting or something? It was a it was a Chrysler Corporation vehicle. Was it a Viper? It was not a Viper. Uh, was it, it was not that fancy? Was it, it was, cab forward? <laughs> it was it was cab forward. It was an Eagle Vision. The three point original three point five liter V six had dual throttle bodies with the mechanical linkage. So cool. Wasn't that also the one that had some weird thing like a single overhead cam and four valves per cylinder? It did, which is actually quite a logical design. Yes. That and the World War II Merlin engine. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so you get your dual throttle bodies. The, the Dark Horse is going to make over 500. Uh, the current Coyote makes about 450, so you're going to get something like 480. You're going to get with the performance package on the GT, a front strut tower brace, Torsen limited slip differentials. You're going to get rolling stock, which means a wheel and tire package, larger Brembo brakes. And then if you get the GT with the performance package, uh, actual functional brake ducts for extra cooling, enhanced engine cooling, and an auxiliary engine oil cooler for track duty. So it should be a very capable car. Remember, just 20 years ago, the idea of a 480 horsepower Mustang would have had you asking about, well, mm -hmm. is it a premier model? Is it yeah. forced induction? Nope, naturally aspirated. And it's not even the dark horse. This is just the GT with a performance pack. Plus, Magna Ride becomes an option once you get the performance mm -hmm. pack. And uh, you know that, that dark horse is going to be revving really high because it's also going to be naturally aspirated. So that's going to be a screaming engine. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one. Again, the fact that they're talking about so much exclusive content above the GT with performance pack and the carbon wheels. I don't think you put the carbon wheels on something that's maybe 5% more than a GT. I think this will be closer to the GT350 than the Mach 1. We talk about being sort of a blend between the two, but I don't think it's going to be an equal blend. I think it's going to be fairly exotic. But we won't be getting a hybrid or an EV. If you want an EV Mustang, you still have to buy the Mach-E. Yep, that's true. And uh, the one funny part I thought was that later that day when the Mustang Stampede occurred, enrolled in hundreds of Mockies, and that okay. kind of made me a little sad. Okay, speaking of weirdness, uh, let's talk about the GMC Canyon, because I feel like we're looking at a Cadillac Seville moment. The Cadillac Seville, folks, in 1976, debuted as the smallest car in the Cadillac lineup and also the most expensive. It was based on the Nova, but it had a million different dampers to quiet down the rattles and the shakes. Three-inch longer wheelbase, a fuel-injected Oldsmobile 350 V8, tons of interior amenities, and it was designed as almost like a reboot for Cadillac in an era when Mercedes and BMW were starting to gain ground. And I'm wondering if the new GMC Canyon which you can price out to over $60,000, is a harbinger of a future in which we see more mid-sized trucks rather than more full-size mm. trucks in the truck market. Well, I think GM did a really good job with the Colorado and Canyon, but I will say that 
the over $60,000 price point is a vehicle you can't buy because it was only the edition one, which is completely sold out. And you will not be able to get your AT4X really up that high without accessories that are dealer installed. So there's no true corollary there. The That price tag included the, the winch with the um, the uh, the non-steel winch cable, the, the composite winch cable, yes. all the bumpers, the skid plates, the rock rails, the braces in the back, all of the aftermarket accessory bin parts jammed on it. That's how it got up to 63, basically. Um, the regular AT4X is likely going to be under $60,000, probably more between 55 and 58 would be my guess there. The Denali probably down a little bit from there, maybe closer to 50000 And then the base version is going to be more expensive than the base Colorado, but not as expensive as, as some of the others. Because the GMC is always going to get the 310 horsepower tune of the engine, which I thought was quite interesting, including the rear-wheel drive model. I also thought it was interesting that there is a Denali spec. Now, we've seen the price of an average full-size truck you know, your 1500 class, not 2500s, not Super Duties, not 3500s. But we've seen it crest $50,000 recently as these have become, well, premium purchases. And I do think that given the number of people who are now using these as cars, the practicality of the midsize truck and the availability of trims like Denali that are going to be over 50000 The 61000 I, I threw that out there to shock the audience mm -hmm. a bit. But the idea of a $50,000 midsize truck is very real. And I think when you're looking at almost equal pricing for basically a half ton pickup or a midsize, one will start to cannibalize the other eventually. I would not be shocked yeah. if we start seeing a lot more canyons and Colorados sold rather than Sierras and Silverados. And I wouldn't be shocked to see the Ranger cannibalize the F-150 a little bit. And once Ram launches its midsize, again, a little bit of uh, eating their own lunch. I think we're going to look back on some of these launches and the price point they're selling at and the luxury trim levels being offered. And if we don't look at this as a turning point year, definitely the beginning of a trend at least. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I mean, full-size truck sales, pardon me, are just running out of control. Yeah. So I think at the moment this is additive, but there's got to be a moment where that changes. Um, for GM, it's tricky because they haven't had a runaway success with this generation of half-ton truck. GMC sales have been okay. Chevy sales have really not been okay on the Silverado. So they had to do that emergency refresh thing. Um, this could help some of that, I think. But they're also targeting a slightly different shopper in a way, especially with the AT4X version of the Canyon. Um, all versions of the Canyon are going to get the more off-road capable front bumper. So that was kind of an interesting twist with the cutouts for improving approach angles. Um, the Colorado looks like it's probably going to start right around the same base price as the upcoming Tacoma, most likely. It's going to be more of a Tacoma competitor there. And the Denali in the GMC also makes sense because you could charge a lot more for the wood parts and it's higher profits. That's really good for GMC as they're really struggling to try and claim that they're the premium truck when... There are a lot of premium trucks out there. I would also say in the midsize segment, we have the Rivian R1T, whose MSRP now that there are pricing updates from Rivian, the MSRP can get up to $100,000 essentially after you've added all the various options and gadgets and gizmos. Yeah, I would not be shocked if at some point in the next 10 years, we see a turn towards more midsize and compact trucks because I think the sales of midsize trucks 
And the revelation that was the Maverick opened the eyes of the auto industry to the potential of smaller trucks, especially given the people who don't need them for work or heavy duty towing are probably more likely to pick an, an efficient, uh, easy to maneuver vehicle. Like you could be hardcore about trucks, mm -hmm. but if you've got to maneuver this thing in a city or in the suburbs, it does help to have a smaller vehicle. And the fact that they're not offering like standard cab um, extended bed options yeah. on the Canyon really speaks to the assumption that these are going to be pure lifestyle. And, or the Colorado, it should be said. Yeah. Well. yeah. I, I, Part of me wants to think that this is going to be a gateway drug to the full-size truck in a way. And I think that that's what we're seeing with Maverick. It doesn't look like really any full-size F-150 shoppers decided to go for the Maverick. This seems to be new people that have never had a truck before or wanted a truck, or maybe they had a Tacoma-sized truck, something like that, and they get into a Maverick that's just a hair smaller. But I would not be surprised if this kind of shopper, especially the younger demographic, ends up graduating up into a bigger truck. I don't know very many full-size truck shoppers that seem to be willing to go for something smaller. My guess is going to be that in the future, you're going to see some people stepping down from full-size trucks into midsize. And then I think eventually every brand is going to have its its Maverick equivalent. Maybe Chevy brings back the the S10 or something like that. But I think you'll see people stepping up from that like Escape or Blazer based unibody like compact truck to like a midsize. And then you'll see people who maybe would have looked at a half ton truck stepping down to something that's midsize. Because let's face it, these midsize trucks are now the size of F-150s and Rams mm -hmm. from the 90s. They're big. Uh yeah, but no one, no one wants a small truck. Uh, you know, you're, I'm in California, you're in New York, but my, my family's all in Texas, tiny town, Texas. And let me just say in tiny town, Texas, you know, you might buy your high schooler a Maverick to go to school in, okay. and then maybe they go off to, you know, UT and, or, or A&M and you get them a, a, a Ranger. But when they graduate and they buy their own truck, they're not, they're going to buy an F-150 or a Ram 1500 or a Silverado 1500. And, and ain't nobody going to go to the local barbecue place in, in Winchester, Texas and, and say, I just traded in my F-150 for a Ranger. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Nobody is trading in their half ton truck for a baby truck. That's, that's today, but let's not forget <laughs> that if you want to find a Cadillac with steer horns on the hood down in Texas, they used to be in every lot. They're an endangered species now. Times do change. There was a time uh, when yeah, but you know. put you, you put your Longhorns on your Silverado, but oh, you yeah. can't you can't put your Longhorns on a Colorado. That just doesn't work. No, that's true. I don't know. Maybe we, we shall see. We shall see. Maybe they put a cowbell on a Colorado. So we got some other fun debuts. Um, we've heard some uh, speculation about a new cross trek. I don't. I don't know what's on the radar, but right now we've got pictures of it. We've got pictures of it for the Japanese market. Do you have any insight into where this is going? Yeah, we have some very light refreshed components. Big thing was the bigger screen on the inside. Yeah. Aside from that, we don't know too much, but I do know that uh, Subaru has invited me to the unveiling of a all new product, they claim, uh, at the end of October. So my guess is that that will not really be all new, that it will really be the refreshed Crosstrek, but it could always be something else. It could be a new plug-in hybrid version or a new regular hybrid version, something along those lines. We'll have to wait and see. Well, it's not going to be a BRZ STI, so I don't know. I'm probably going to sit that one out. Also, and this is maybe a little bit outside of the focus of Auto Buyer's Guide, but we now have a Ferrari SUV. Alex, you've seen it. You haven't driven it. 
We can't go in depth on this, but what's your hot take? It makes sense. Everybody's gonna gotta have an SUV, so why not? I mean, Ferrari, Ferrari's just following Lamborghini down the down the Urus rabbit hole. Yeah. I, I will say this: people people say to me, "Oh, well, you have to have an SUV these days in order to save a sports car company." I'm like, Ferrari doesn't need anything to save it. It sells every car it makes. Even the Portofino M and the Roma sold out. So what this is really is not about volume; it's about transaction price. Because Ferrari, since 2017 has been a publicly traded company. So when you're selling a lot of Portofino M's and Roma's to make, well, frankly, five-figure production numbers, which is their goal, uh, you're going to be lowering the average transaction price compared to where it was when you focused on mm -hmm. bigger cars with 12 cylinders. So this is pretty much going to start at $400,000. And all of a sudden, they're willing to make 20% of their production each year, uh, the Pro Sangue. So one-fifth yes. of their production is going to be a 400,000 bare minimum vehicle with a 6.5 liter V12, an enormous physical footprint, a lot of added value content. And this is basically them finding a way to succeed where the FF and the 612 and the GT C4 Luso basically failed. Um, a large vehicle for multiple people with a hatch on the back, and it will yep. sell for a lot of money. And they need, they really do need the money because they, they're going to need to make platform changes and emissions changes and electrification things happen at some point in time and they're going to need cash for that this is a good way to make the cash it's not the worst idea on earth and i'll be honest the worst thing i can say about the pro sangue is that it looks like a mazda cx and it really does the worst thing i could say about the pro sangue is the name is dumb yeah well I, we just call it the purebred or the pure yeah. blood or the blue blood whatever all true um, also important, it's a big vehicle, guys, but it's not terribly high. It's about 62 inches high, which means it's roughly the same height off the ground as a Kia EV6, which barely yeah. qualifies as an SUV. I've heard the term thrown. I, I don't think you can call an EV6 an SUV. And if you can't call it an SUV, I don't know if you can call the Sangue an SUV. I'd call it maybe a five-door hatchback with a lift kit, but a mild one. Yeah, but a hatch doesn't sound as sexy somehow as an SUV. Yeah, well, it doesn't sound as sexy as an estate. So, you know, that's true. It's true. But, uh, it be but very let's see. Bad. So what what uh, this let's go through the list of, of upcoming drives because October is going to be bonkers. Here's let's go through the list of things and let me know what excites you. Grand Wagoneer L. Are you excited about a stretched Wagoneer? Will it be less ugly? Um. No, but you can paint the pillars and it improves the look greatly. But it will have yeah. a three liter inline six turbocharged engine producing 510 ponies. Yes, I'm very interested. Uh, then we have the Nissan Aria, which seems, let me be frank, a little too little, quite late. I can't get excited about it. I know some people are trying to make the drivetrain out to be something special or even hint that it's rally based. I don't get any of that. It looks like it's going to be very practical. The cargo area looks big. I do like the dashboard. It looks pretty cool. But again, it's it's awfully late. It is very late. But look, something is better than nothing, especially when you're trying to beat the reputation of being the guys who sell uh, Nissan Leafs. The Aria yeah. is great compared to that. And just when the Nissan Leaf is going to get its tax credit restored in January, the Aria is going to be on the scene and it's built in Japan, so it won't have a tax credit. Yeah, I mean, again, better than nothing, but this is like launching a caliber when what you had before was the neon. Mm -hmm. I think it's at best a lateral move. 
but it'll seem more premium. It won't embarrass them. The problem is if people are cross shopping beyond Nissan, they're going to find better alternatives. Yeah. Speaking of which, we have the Nero, which has received a strangely thorough refresh. So lots of structural changes in addition to the styling changes, and it will be hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and full EV. It's borrowed a lot of styling bits and bobs from the EV6. So the interior looks very much like the EV6 with scaled down screens. They are claiming better fuel economy, better range than previously. So it's going to be about 250 to 260 miles of EV range uh, for the EV model for less money than the EV6 base version, front wheel drive, of course. Or you can choose the approximately 50 horsepower, sorry, 50 mile per gallon hybrid model or the approximately 50 mile per gallon plug-in hybrid model. It's going to probably have around 30 something miles of range. Uh, and now the plug-in hybrid gets a lot more power, so it's not going to be as pokey slow as it was before. Yeah, the 1.6 hybrid on Kia Hyundai products is so ridiculously efficient that the only way they could position the plug-in hybrid is as a performance option. Uh, it, there's really nothing necessary to make the vehicle more economical, and electric range by itself doesn't save you money if the system cost is that much higher. So if they position this as a performance vehicle, it makes total sense. If it's just incremental yeah. improvement on the hybrid, I don't see the logic. The one bummer is that clearly this was designed in the era where it used to get a tax credit because previously the plug-in hybrid model and the hybrid model effectively ended up at almost the same price. So it was a no-brainer to get the plug. Now it's going to be a tough sell, I think. I that think one is built in South Korea. Yeah, it's for the person who's looking to replace gasoline, not the person who's looking to save money. Yep. Next up, we have the new Crown, which is the sedan that they sometimes want to try and call a crossover, even though it's got a trunk. I don't know whether to call this thing a Subaru or an AMC Eagle, but I see both. I am intrigued to see specifications, which we don't have a lot of yet, because it really looks like it's only about as high off the ground as a Camry. So it doesn't really look like an Eagle or a Subaru. Uh, Volvo tried the, you know, Subaru tried the sport utility sedan, the, the SUS. And it was a little sus, let's just be honest. Yeah. Uh, and, and Volvo attempted the S60 cross country. Um, but both of those at least had ground clearance. This one looks like it's going to be four and a half to five and a half inches somewhere around there. Yeah, I scratch my head. Out of the corner of their mouth, they're trying to position this as a flagship of some kind. And then out of the other corner, they're trying to explain that this is what replaced the Avalon. And I don't mm -hmm. see it as a one for one swap. The person who wanted the Buick like ease of coasting around in an Avalon is going to step up to a Lexus ES and not go for the crown. True. And full-size sedan sales are dominated by Chrysler in the U.S., oddly enough. Uh, Avalon really struggled with volume uh, this last generation. It, it was a huge struggle. I, my memory is a little bad on the exact numbers, but I seem to think maybe 20 to 25,000 was their peak, something like that a year. Does that sound right? Yeah, and here's the thing. If you want to load up a camera, you can basically just yeah. loosen Avalon with the options list. But last year, the Chrysler Corporation shifted 170,000 full-size sedans in the U.S. So that, let's tell true. you something. A huge number of them were sold on the basis of one version of that car being really cool. Like there are plenty yep. of people who bought full-size oh, yeah. like LD platforms um, because they thought the Hellcat was cool, even if they got a V6. Oh, yeah. If there's yep. not a cool version of the Crown, then there's no halo vehicle for the model line. So I don't exactly. see the 
Also coming up soon is the Highlander drive. Uh, only big change there is the V6 is dead. So uh, Toyota is killing off the V6. This is probably more controversial, really, than the Crown or the Highlander or anything else. It includes the Lexus RX. Uh, basically, the the days are numbered for the 3.5-liter Toyota V6. The 2.4-liter turbo is replacing it in basically everything. Yeah, I think you're going to see this across the industry, everywhere from you know Chevy's mid-sized pickups to the Mustang lineup to the Highlander. Uh, the job that used to be done by a six is now done by a four. When you can get 320 horsepower and 430 pound-feet of torque out of a 2.7-liter direct-injected four in a mid-sized pickup like the GMC mm -hmm. Canyon, yeah. who needs a V6, especially if it's naturally aspirated? They're thrashy. They're loud. They create a lot of second-order harmonics. They don't make a ton of power unless you boost them, and they take up a lot more space than an inline engine. I don't see the logic, and they're not sexy. Unless they're designed by a guy named Busso, it's the engine all <laughs> without. Yep. Then there are going to be a few hybrids. Corolla all-wheel drive hybrid, which is the attempt to breathe life into the Corolla. And then we have the CRV hybrid, which they're really pushing as not necessarily the best-selling CRV, because I think that the 1.5-liter turbo is still going to be the best-selling model, but the desirable CRV. Well, what the Corolla needs is some sort of a tweener model. Like, in the Honda Civic lineup, you've got the Civic, you've got the SI, and you've got the Type R. Well, we now have a bonkers GR Corolla, mm -hmm. and then we have boring Corollas. We need <laughs> something in between with like 200 horsepower. I'm going to go with that's probably never going to happen. And then uh, rounding out the month, we're going to get the Telluride refresh, which honestly doesn't need a refresh. It's a very minor one because... To, uh, tell, uh, Kia still can't build enough Tellurides. It's it's crazy. The sales are insane. The factory's running full tilt, and people just can't get enough of this boxy Kia. And not only that, but people are paying over list traveling ridiculous distances to get them, and they're redesigning this thing while it's still red hot. I can just see people over at Stellantis looking at the success, the Challenger, and they're like, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. The less you change, <laughs> the more you'll sell. One generation is... Uh, I will say that the Kia refresh is very, very Stellantis refreshy, though, because they were super careful. They don't want to offend anybody. So they, <laughs> they changed the headlights subtly. They changed the grill subtly, didn't change any sheet metal, and they gave it the LCD instrument cluster people had been asking for. And that's kind of it. And that's a good point. They'll sell everyone they make. And mm -hmm. frankly... What they need to do now is find a way to capitalize it. You know how every company that makes a smaller, cheaper version of a popular product calls it the sport? Find a way to make like a Telluride sport that 30% <laughs> less and sucks, but you'll sell just as many because you call it a Telluride. Outlander sport. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, they, they didn't exactly go quite that way for the Atlas. Uh, what do they call the Atlas? Is Not it an Atlas sport? sport? <clears throat> Is that what they called it? Am the I am Atlas, I confused? The Atlas Sport. I think there was an Atlas Sport. The, the yeah. two row, the two row Atlas. What are they calling that? I, this this is one where I need to Google it. That's so far off my radar. I have no idea. Uh, Let's check it out. Cross Sport. It's the Cross, cross Sport. I thought it was there the Atlas go. Sport. I knew there was a chrome yeah. Atlas. Yes, out yes. There. That was it. The Cross Sport. Yes. And then of course we you know we have the the Pathfinder and the Pilot. So. Range Rover Sport, Discovery Sport. Bronco. And now we're going to get a three-row Range Rover. I'm actually down with that. That's something they needed because, frankly, they did. you get to the point with the Range Rover where they are now so expensive if you load them up 
that the next step is truly something like a Cullinan or a Bentley Bentayga or a Lamborghini mm -hmm. Urus. Like they're at that point. You can spend 200 grand on a Range Rover these days. So why not three rows? Exactly. And we have we have a GLS with three rows that gets fantastically expensive. So there's there's money in that third row because even rich people have grandkids or a dog that might need to go in the back. Okay, so since we went there and we did mention the Ferrari, Alex, what mega SUV are you buying if you're buying a mega? Now that they're a thing, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, dear. Mega SUV. Hmm. Do you go with speed or do you go with size or do you go with lux? Because now you have options. I mean, what's the price limit here? Well, Ferrari's $400,000, so I guess the sky's the limit, right? I I would get probably like get the Bentley. If you're going to spend that much money, it should have a Bentley or a Rolls logo on the front. I haven't seen what the Hummer SUV is going to be like, but that would be like um, an early contender for me because I kind of I like the way the the different twist. Look. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah. I would also say realistically, just skip the Ferrari, get the Rolls Royce Cullinan. If you're okay driving around in like a plutocratic status symbol, the Rolls Royce grill loses nothing status-wise to Ferrari. You're going to get enough mm -hmm. speed to scare the hell out of yourself because it accelerates like a C5 Corvette, even though it weighs 6,000 pounds. And you get all the fun things that SUVs can do, but the no fold-down seat por sangue can't. So you get yeah. 210 inches of excess, you get off-road capability, you can put your stuff inside you can bring the serfs who till your lands all of these things that really rich people need these and i think that's that's long. my the brand positioning of of the lamborghini and ferrari suvs just bug me somehow it's not the same kind of problem as porsche creating an suv oddly enough because porsche's had some mildly practical things here at some point and of course their parent company makes practical things but them producing an SUV just seems wrong somehow. With Porsche, I actually agree with you because if you look back in 2003 when the Cayenne came out, they said, well, this is essential for Porsche to remain independent. Five years later, <laughs> Volkswagen owns them. How'd that work out? And at that point, Audi can just sell the SUVs. Bentley, Lambo can sell the luxury SUVs. Like Porsche could have just made 911s till the cows came home, sold them all. They could have gotten bought up all the same and it would have been the same outcome. I mean, it didn't really matter what they made because they never really made the money on the cars anyway. The Porsche family makes their money in investing and the car company is just kind of a fun side project. Yeah, it's so. weird because there's a company called Porsche Holding that owns Volkswagen and then Volkswagen owns Porsche AG. But well, soon Porsche Holding Porsche Holding owns a minority share of Volkswagen, but they control a huge share of Volkswagen. That's, it's a tricky one. Yeah. And the Porsches and the PX hate each other. And the German government sometimes gets involved. This could be a great sitcom or, or maybe even better soap opera. If we spoke German, man, we could make a mint on this. Yeah, it's funny when you go to a Porsche event and the Porsche PR people were like, well, you know, when we bought uh, when we bought Volkswagen. And I'm like, that's that's not how that sales deal went down, buddy. Volkswagen <laughs> Volkswagen was in this weird position because the, the Porsche family had leveraged Porsche, the brand, to the extreme. And they had their fingers and everything because Porsche in the 2000s, early 2000s, was 
a investment company that happened to build a few cars now and then when it suited them. It wasn't right. really a car company. It was a licensing company. It was an investment company. And that car company thing, pff, whatever, that, that was, there's no money in that. So, I mean, there wasn't enough money in the Porsche car thing to buy chunks of Volkswagen. And in this process, their investment side, they were like, let's buy Volkswagen. This will be the thing. We'll we could just swallow, swallow it whole. We could control it and it'll be a great deal. Uh, so they tried to leverage everything they could and it was a very bad timing deal. Markets were crashing all over the place. And in order to save Porsche from bankruptcy, Volkswagen had to buy Porsche. And if you remember at the time before the whole thing imploded, Volkswagen briefly became the world's most valuable company by market cap because of the Porsche attempt to corner the market. But this is this is mm -hmm. a drama for another day. Uh, Alex, what do we have uh, coming down the pike on Auto Buyer's Guide and EV Buyer's Guide? We have a ton of cool stuff. We've got uh, lots of comparisons between the Rivian and the Lightning coming up. And then uh, a video where we tell you which one of the trucks is going to be going first, because one of the trucks is listed for sale. So uh, we'll tell you all that in a future episode. And then on the other side, we've got GR Corolla, Manual Supra, Grand Wagoneer L, Aria, all that kind of stuff coming up soon too. So be sure and stay tuned. Definitely check it all out. Check out EV Buyer's Guide, Auto Buyer's Guide, Alex on Autos. It's also a website. And I'm Tim underscore Masso on Instagram. See you every later. Au revoir. Right, well.